verse 21 to 24. But there's a story about a manager of minor league baseball. So it's minor league baseball. And he was so disgusted with his center field's performance that he ordered him back to the dugout and the minor league manager assumed the position himself, which you can do in minor leagues. The player coach or player manager, so to speak. So he went into center field and the first ball that came into center field hit the manager right in the mouth. And then the center fielder, the manager was there still playing in center field and there was a high fly ball coming his way and there was glare because of the sun and he was saying, I got it, I got it, then smack, it hit him right in the forehead. So he still didn't take himself out of the game. He's still in the game and then there was a third ball and it was a hard line drive right at him and he had his arms open and before he knew it, the ball smacked him right in the eye. So he makes his way back to the dugout and he grabs that center fielder by the uniform and he lifts him up and he says, you idiot, you got the center field so messed up that even I can't do a thing there. Someone once said, don't find a fault, find a remedy. Hello? As we make our way back to these final verses of chapter three of our series, is there a divine remedy to the disobedience of Adam and Eve? Life has to be more than fault-finding assertions in the blame game of life. Fault-finding, blame-naming prevents us, blocks us from receiving and experiencing the love of God shed abroad by the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Before the Advent season started, Pastor Betty shared from Genesis this is three about the blaming tendencies of Adam who blamed, the, blamed the God for giving him the woman and Eve for blaming serpent for tempting her. It's a scene that's played over again and again in marriages. It wasn't me, it must have been you. No, it wasn't me, it must have been you, and so on. It's played in our society. The politicians do it all the time. In every arena of life, there's a blame game going on. Gregory Boyd adds that in our fallen state, we point out the dust particles in others' eyes in order to deflect attention from the tree trunks in our own eyes. He says, instead of trusting God to be the advocate, our lawyer, as 1 John 2 says, that Christ Jesus is our advocate, we try to take on the role of defending ourselves. So here's the question that Boyd asks of all of us. Why do we continue to act of the soil of self-serving or self-defending and continue to allow ourselves to represent ourselves instead of letting our creator represent us? So in other words, why are we so caught up with being our own defense attorneys? If you watch a lot of law TV shows, you know that you don't try to defend yourself. You get someone else to do it, even if you're a lawyer you get someone else to defend you. So as we come to this last Sunday of 2019, as we head towards what to me seems unbelievable at the moment, 2020, which I thought was so far away when I was a kid, that we need to look at a year that we will look at remedy instead of fault finding. Looking at remedy in the problems that we have as a church, 
remedies in the problems we have as a society, remedies to the problems we have in our individual families, remedies that we need for our community at large. And if, if you don't have problems, one rabbi said, a man without problems is an idiot. Because there's no way that you are living the human life on earth and you've never had a problem or you don't have a problem. And the problems are good because life is a challenge. And if you don't understand that life is a challenge, you're not going to get far in life. It's as simple as that. I also pray that, we, that what we have learned from the Genesis account, that humanity was not a series of problems when it initiated by God, by His grace, and by His creative power. When we first came into existence, at one point in the story of God and man, man chose, chose to go their own way instead of God's way. We have followed the lines from Sinatra's My Way, or even during this Christmas as I watched the old film Going My Way with Bing Crosby, we have decided to go our way and my way instead of God's way. God will make a way where there seems to be no way. We need to trust him to defend us. We need to trust him that he can take care of things that we don't have to butt in. And we need to trust him that the blaming game is not going to get us anywhere, anywhere in life. We need to take responsibility ourselves. You see, what Adam and Eve, what happened in their life, writes John Goldenway, is they ignored the red light, do not eat of the tree with the knowledge of good and evil. And by ignoring the red light that God had put in their lives, they crashed the train that we call humanity. It crashed and disaster evolved. God created Adam and Eve, and, and as humanity is represented, they turned away from God instead of turning to God. And instead of moving towards their given goal, remember that we said that at creation, it's not perfect in the philosophical sense that we all think without any defaults or flawlessness, but even in the beginning, their relationship with God was a given. They had a relationship with God, and it was a goal. It never stops there. It's always dynamic. It's always fluid. It's always moving. Even today, our relationship with God should never be stagnant. It's always moving towards a destiny. It's always moving towards a goal that God has given to us. And they turned their backs on God. I don't know how many times I read that in the last few months as I've been going through the prophets and the Old Testament that they turned their backs on God. God is there with his face wanting us to look him in the face and pray with, to him and have fellowship with him. And what, we turn our backs and we walk away from what God wants us to have, a deep, intimate, loving relationship with him. Because of the train wreck, we have not reached our destiny yet. And we live in that tension even though we live in the time of Christ and the, the redemption of mankind and the, from the power of sin and death. Having said that, the original blessing of Genesis 1 has not been removed. The agreement that God had with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden is still part of the blessing that we are working towards, we are moving towards to fulfill because it's God's mandate, God's commission to you and to me and to whosoever will are across this earth and globe in which we live in. See, Adam and Eve tried to gain autonomy when they transgressed the food boundary. It's like some of us have done this Christmas. Right, Mark? Transgress the food boundary. You're not supposed to eat that because it's not good for your health. Well, a little bit won't hurt. A little bit won't hurt. 
They were not supposed to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but they could have eaten from the tree of the knowledge of the tree of life. And they didn't eat that. They ate what they weren't supposed to eat like all of us do because bad food always tastes good, right? So the blessing is still intact. The blessing will remain, but the, this is the outcome. The human vulnerability to death now creates an urgency that would change how the blessing is experienced. So let us take seriously the call to examine ourselves as we close out this year, 2019, and let's not be like the minor league manager to blame his player for messing up center field. We have messed it up ourselves. All of us have a part in messing up the field and the play that's going on. Let us keep in mind that as we read these scriptures that God keeps peace even though there's an avalanche of sin and shame. Genesis chapter 3, verse 20 has that Adam named the woman Eve, which means mother of all living. And even though the pronouncement of being expelled is to come, and even though they should die, it's in naming Eve the mother of all living that when we ever see a child being born, it's because God, despite man's disobedience, never gave up on the world and never gave up on humanity. That's why she's called the mother of all living. Before that, she was just woman out of man. So let us hear the word of the Lord. The Lord, God, made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and also take, or take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And he drove the man out. He placed him on the east side of the Garden of Eden and cherubim and a flaming sword. Can you imagine that? A cherubim, an angel, flaming sword, flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. For this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these stories that we find in Genesis that speak to the depths of humanity because it reveals who we are. It reveals to us where we need to go and it reveals to us what we need to do. So if Holy Spirit, may you communicate to us as we close out this year, O oh Lord, and, and we really live in a world that still plays the blame game to the hilt. And Lord, help us to look at Christ, our deliverer, and move towards your remedy. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God has not abandoned us. He still pursues us, even in our disobedience, even in our nakedness, even in our shame and guilt, as Pastor Breddy brought up a few weeks ago. God draws us out of hiding. He doesn't force us of a hiding, out of hiding. You get that? He doesn't force us. He says, yeah, I know where you are, so you better come out. He says, where are you? Where are you? Then you identify where you are, and, and, and he draws us with his love. He draws us with his loving kindness to come out and to encounter him, and not to be afraid of him. God covers our shame. That's what we learn here in this Genesis story. God's covering. When God finds Adam and Eve trying to cover themselves up with fig leaves, now imagine that, trying to cover yourself up with fig leaves. Uh, I mean, when the wind blows, you know what it's going to expose, right? It's not a, not a, they're not really good at fashion design yet, right? 
So God, God, I don't know if they were blushing and God noticed that or God wanted to move in, but God provides some garments of skin, the scriptures say. So something had to die in order to provide them with that clothing. And their clothing is probably inadequate, so it's a, it's, it's a compassionate side of God that we are seeing there, that he cares so much for them that he's going to provide something that's adequate for their journey that is still yet to come. So he provides these garments of skins, garments that are more durable because the world that they're going to be exiled to is going to need durable clothing. Much has been said about the covering that God provides for Adam and Eve. It smacks of tabernacle and temple sacrificial imagery that there was an animal sacrifice to take away the shame, the sin of the people of Israel, as the tabernacle and the temple are also signs of the seven days of creation, which we talked about in the first sermon of the sermon series. That as God created the world and he took us from chaos into order and then he, he designed his temple and this temple is the world and in that middle of this temple he put his image bearers which are you and me, humankind. And it's still here, the temple and tabernacle imagery is still flowing around here in this, this idea of God making garments of skin for Adam and Eve. And contrary to the pictures that we see with just like a caveman type of clothing that they have, it was really a tunic. It covered all of them. God covers all of us. He covers us fully from the top of our heads to the soles of our feet with his covering, with his, sometimes in the Old Testament we look at it as his anointing because garments are a sign of inventure. They're a sign of authority. They're a sign of power that the one who is wearing these garments is, is known by everyone. So I know what you are and I know you have a divine task to do. See, the train wreck of Adam and Eve did not take away their calling to rule as image reflectors in a world created by God. See, in the death of the animal, Adam and Eve are going to begin to sense in the depths of their being their own mortality, which they never sensed when their nakedness before they disobeyed and before they sinned. Prior to their disobedience, no one cared about their nakedness because they didn't sense it. But now we appear before God because of shame, because of dishonor, because of our disobedience, and we need God's clothing, hello? We need God's covering. And it's not our design that is adequate. That's what we see here. We're trying to cover ourselves. We're trying to be God's ourselves, and we fail miserably at it. That's why God has taken the design himself and has clothed us with himself. So we go from self-made coverings to God-designed coverings. And you need to learn to accept God's covering. Have you accepted it? Have you accepted God's covering over you on your financial life, over your family life, over your role in the church, God's covering, over your role in life and society, God's covering, God's anointing? It's evident in the book of Genesis. The first one we see is Joseph. And Abraham, what does Abraham gives him? A coat of many colors, which identifies Joseph as Abraham's favorite. And Abraham's favorite is the one who's going to lead the rest of the tribe, right? Or Jacob's favorite, rather, than in that sense. But also, there's another change of clothes when Joseph is in Egypt, and the Pharaoh elevates him to a position of authority. He changes his garments again. Here we have the same thing with Adam and Eve, just 
It was precedent for what would take place later as they're clothed by God to go into the world and to move towards their original calling. But unlike Joseph and unlike other people, even Daniel was dressed with new garments and prophets had new garments. Well, their new vestiture was a sign of promotion. Adam and Eve's investiture, new design, new clothing was a sign of demotion. They were demoted and not promoted. They had the ultimate calling of God upon humanity to be his image bearers and rule and guide and keep harmony from from happening in their lives and not letting chaos back in. But they chose the opposite. See, the covering of God through the provision of garments are acts of grace. God provides, God makes a way even when we don't deserve it. Hello? All of us stand on level ground there. None of us are beyond or above anyone else. We are all all in need of God's acts of grace and providing for the difficult environment that we live in, for the difficult environment that existed east of Eden. God initiates grace before judgment. Do you get it? Before he banishes them, which is the next part that we'll look at, God and grace covers their shame. Before he exiled Cain after he killed his brother Abel, God told everyone, don't touch him. God covered him. And before the flood came and took the world at that day and as it was known and flooded it, God made a covenant with Noah. Grace always precedes judgment. That's the heart of God. That's the God that we serve. I don't know what you heard about God, but that's the God that I serve, the one that his grace comes even before his judgment. God will provide the remedy to our fault-finding tendencies. Now, why Adam and Eve never ate of the tree of life, the tree of life, not death, is beyond me, and there's no answer there for us, so we can only speculate it. Was a that they were so hungry for what they can get now and become their own gods that they didn't see that they were going to be part of mortality and death. And sometimes people in our world today, they chase all these extra things in their own clothing, in their own designs, in their own power, in their own defending themselves, that they forget that God has provided for us all that we need in life. And that's why we can sing, great is thy faithfulness. All I have needed, your hand has provided, O God. And yet we try to live like Adam and Eve and cross those food boundaries and eat what we shouldn't eat instead of digest from the eternal wells of God, source of abundance for us to live in. Then he banishes them. The sentence is passed. Grace precedes judgment, but there has to be a consequence to disobedience. Humanity is banished from that place of paradise that we call Eden before man makes another attempt of becoming like God's self-divinization. Humanity places itself rather than God at the center, and now they're being banished, they're being driven out, they're being sent out by God from Eden. They messed it up bad. Our performance as God's image reflectors sucks. It sucks. And God, with his mercy and grace, still calls us to himself, and for me, that is amazing. 
That's what amazing grace is all about. God forgives them of their sin, and, but there's a consequence of your disobedience. Just like a person that's come to Jesus and, and he's been given a 10-year sentence in jail, just because he's come to Jesus doesn't mean he gets off scot-free from the 10-year prison term. He still has to do his time. Now God can shorten that for him or help him and enable him by clothing him with these new garments of Christ that are now this person's new life and help him to live the life and maybe get out in three or four years. But you know, if you, if you do something, there is a consequence to what you do. There's one thing for sure that we know in this passage, they're never going back to the garden. They're never going back to the garden. They're called to go and live a life what we call East of Eden, just like that old James Dean movie that was quite popular. East of Eden is a world that is disrupted by disobedience. They could have chosen God's way, but they chose their own way. And because of disobedience, there's been widening ripples of the couple's actions that still affect us in our day. Life East of Eden has never been easy for anyone Adam and Eve failed to take personal responsibility. Their son Cain failed to take moral responsibility. So the moral of the story is, is that God has given you our responsibility. What are you doing with it? And this is not just for pastor and church board members. Every child of God is responsible for the grace of God that has been given to them and to act responsibly towards that grace that has been given to them. And our greatest example, of course, is Jesus Christ, who was obedient even unto death on the cross when he could have called 10,000 angels. Responsibility is something that we need in our day and in our age. So the angels are there, they're guarding the tree and the sword, and there's a flashing on and off, and they're guarding that way, and at the end of the, that part of the story, we say, but life wasn't supposed to be like this. Just like my wife talked about the Christ, messy Christmases, you know, life wasn't supposed to be like that. Don't look at what's become messy, look at what God can turn your messiness into something good. We used to sing, he took all my broken pieces, all my confusion, and he made something good out of that. God knows our messiness, but he wants you not to defend yourself, but he wants you to surrender to him and to let him take that brokenness, that strife, that confusion, that uncertainty, and make something good out of it. But remember, he's the potter. He's the potter. I'm just a piece of clay dumping myself on that potter's table and saying, Lord, shape me, mold me, use me. Use me, Lord. Adam and Eve leave the garden and they enter a virgin world because of their choice and as a consequence of their choice. The greatest loss of humanity was intimate relationship with God. Their greatest loss was not paradise, though we talked about trouble in paradise, we talked about paradise loss, but that wasn't the greatest loss. The greatest loss isn't what we think is heaven either, because the heavens and the earth existed at the beginning. They're places that overlap in God's design. John Walton makes this clear, says, throughout all the rest of the Old Testament, no one ever hears of regaining the comfort of Eden. Because we can't go back to the garden. But regaining access of God's presence was paramount. It's found in the prayer of David in Psalm 51. Do not take thy Holy Spirit from me. 
the greatest loss for the Hebrew mind was the presence of God. The presence of God. Not what we like and what we dislike, not what clothes we wear or we do not wear, but the presence of God in our lives. We watched a few days ago on Netflix the story of the two popes, Pope Benedict XVI and, and Pope Francis, and a little bit of their journey together. And when Pope Benedict found out that he wanted to resign or give up his popeship, because he realized that since he became a pope, that he never felt the presence of God. He didn't feel the presence of God. And he was explaining it to the current pope, Pope Francis, that I think I became a pope because it was my desire. It wasn't God's desire. And I now realize that it wasn't for me. It was for someone else to be pope. Now, some people, they're kind of weary if that really happened or not, knowing Pope Benedict or Joseph Ratzinger as he was known as a theologian. But the, the film brings out that, that sometimes we get in the way of doing things our way and we do those things and we always complain, where's the presence of God? Where's the presence of God? Where's the presence of God? And we don't come to the conclusion that maybe the unawareness of the presence of God, because I believe God's always present, the unawareness of that presence is due to us trying to do our own thing instead of us submitting to God and doing his thing. See, the greatest outcome of sin is not what happened to you, that we're all sinners and we're all destined to die, but the greatest effect of this disobedience of Adam and Eve is this desecration of the God that we serve. You follow me? Sin dishonors God. Sin makes God distant instead of close. How do you think God feels when you sin? All we worry about us, 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 us as sinners instead of we hurt God's heart. David got that right even though he said he, he confessed his sins. But he understood that the greatest sin is our desecration of what God wants for us and what he has provided for us always. So for Israel, the result of sin is not that it makes humanity bad, but it makes God distance, resulting in increasing isolation from the reality of the glory and the presence of God. Like Cain and Abel, we're all born outside of Eden and the tree of life. None of us have been born within the Eden environment created by God. And because we're all born east of Eden, then Paul's words come to the light here. For we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Because none of us were born in that environment, that garden, that place called Eden that was full of God's glory. You follow me? So trying to figure out if sin is transmitted through, transmitted through sex or not is irrelevant here. We're all born east of Eden. Even Cain and Abel were born east of Eden. And it's a place that denies the fullness of God's glory. Hello? It's too heavy for the last Sunday of 2019. Because that's not the way it was supposed to be. With death in the picture, survival hangs in the balance. Grace and mercy is at work at the beginning of the human story. As I said before, God's not abandoned us. He's still with us. God's not willing to abandon us completely because he loves us. He cares for us. Yes, the job descriptions look the same. The blessing is still there, but we're going to have to bear with the uncooperation of the world 
because the world's not going to cooperate as it did in Eden. It didn't co- it's not going to cooperate as it did before man disobeyed, where there would be no sweat from the brow of man. Now there's going to be sweat, and the ground's not always going to produce what you plant because it's uncooperative with you. The environment is not the same because we live east of Eden. Do you follow me? Do you follow me? See, the blessing has not been lost, but the climate has changed considerably. Climate change is right there at the beginning of Genesis chapter 3 because the climate east of Eden is not the climate that was in the garden. And it's been downhill ever since. We've been trying to figure out how to grow stuff and, and how to produce stuff and so on, but it's a, just an onward struggle and a battle because we're not living in Eden, my friends. Or as the Wizard of All says, we're not in Kansas anymore. We're in a strange world. That's an outcome of our disobedience and not of our obedience to God. And because of that, the death penalty has been issued. But be assured in your hearts that our God is a God of restoration. Our God is a God of reconciliation. He's working to make things good, right? He's not a God of retribution. You did this, so this is what you're going to get. Because grace precedes judgment. You follow me? God responds to disobedience, not with the full weight of the justice and with that heavy mantle and saying, you're guilty. But he comes with you with open arms like that prodigal son's father. and says, come home, my children. I've made a way where there seemed to be no other way. And I'm waiting to embrace you. I'm ready to give you life. I'm willing to clothe you anew with garments of purity and holiness and righteousness. See, that moment has come to us in the form of his son, Jesus Christ. The indescribable gift of God for all humanity. In Christ, we get everything we need to live life to the fullest including a new set of garments. It smacks throughout the letters of the Apostle Paul. Take off the old, put on the new. Right? Once you were instruments of unrighteousness, now because of Christ, you have become instruments of righteousness. We are clothed in mercy. Aren't you glad for that? Clothed in mercy. Church, we have been given the precious garments of the righteousness of Christ to tell the world that there is a remedy and we need to stop fault fighting. There is a remedy. And Christ is that remedy. And we need to stop pointing fingers at each other and begin to live towards the unity that Christ has created us to live in. The new age of God's kingdom, the new creation that is already in place because of Christ's death and resurrection. We need to remember the words of John the Baptist that we looked at during the Advent season. Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world, full of grace and full of truth, so that we can be reconciled. See, Adam and Eve and Cain failed at responsibility. They failed at leadership. But the one who came after John the Baptist, Jesus Christ, his cousin, succeeded at leadership. He didn't fail. And the leadership is for everyone in the Jewish concept of life. Yes, Adam and Eve were banished from paradise. But listen up. God's church love was not deterred from his mercy triumphs over judgment. I love those words from James' gospel epistle. Mercy triumphs over 
judgment. Jesus, quoting Hosea, said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Even more than the things that we bring God, God's wanted his people to be a people of mercy. Isn't that good for 2020? That we become the people of mercy, the mercy that we have received. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. So if you're not merciful, guess what? You will not be shown mercy. Because <laughs> there was a day in my life, in 1984, where I had to come to the Lord just as I was. I was naked, I was blind, I didn't know it. But when I encountered the living Christ, in my life, and he showed me my wretchedness, and he showed me my blindness, and he showed me my stubbornness, I began to realize that the clothes that who I think I am, that define who I am, isn't who I am, that I am lost without him. I had to come to my own conclusion, my own personal thing. Remember I said that grace is never imposed upon you, it's always offered to you. God drives you out of hiding. He doesn't force you out of hiding. But when I came to that moment in my life and I said yes to the Lord, he filled me with himself. And he clothed me anew. And I became a new creation. And the old things were passed away. But his work's not finished on me yet. It's not finished on me yet. We have the scripture from 2 Corinthians which speaks about our return to the fullness of the kingdom of God and the future that still awaits us. Having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. Folks, I pray that none of you will be found naked before the Lord. This is a moment of grace. We're living in a season of grace and mercy, and God's offering you his clothes of salvation, his joy unspeakable and full of glory, his peace, his love, his love and kindness, his long suffering, and he's offered it to you to clothe you anew. You have a chance to respond, yes or no. But I can't force you. All I can do is offer it to you and point you to him. See, my fashion designer, my tailor, is not the psychoanalysis of Freud and Jung. See, my fashion designer, my tailor, is not Armani or Dolce and Cabana. No, my, my fashion designer, my, my tailor, is not even the tech genius of Steve Jobs or Bill Gates. My fashion designer is Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. Is he yours? Is he yours? See, Adam has been undone. Aren't you happy? That's the time to raise a hallelujah there. Adam has been undone by the second Adam, Jesus Christ. No more hiding. Lord, to you our hearts are open, says the old Anglican prayer, and no secrets are hidden. No more hiding out. No more exile from God's presence because remember when Jesus died on the cross and they say that the, the veil was torn in two and the veil that was torn in two was a symbol of the Holy of Holies and uh, guarding the Holy of Holies was two cherubim. So they're no longer keeping you away from God's presence. They're directing you into God's presence because the curse has been lifted in Jesus Christ. That's the time to shout hallelujah. Do you feel what I'm saying? Do you understand what I'm saying? What has happened to us because of Jesus? It's a good news message. See, Jesus, Jesus Christ has not come to cast us away, 
from his presence. He's come to redirect us back to the Father. Hello? Hello? These are one of the first verses I memorized as a new Christian. Whoever comes to me, I will in no wise way cast out. I don't care what condition you are in. I don't care what you have done in life. I don't care where you have been in life or what, what you think you are going to in life. The promises are Jesus. If you come to him and accept his offer of grace, he's not going to push you away. He's going to push you towards you. He's going to draw you to himself. As Cora Ten Boone said, there's no pit deep enough that the arm of the Lord can't reach down in that pit and pull you out. And as the psalmist says, put you on a solid rock and create a new song of joy. Hallelujah. He put a new song in my life. Church, don't find fault. Look to the remedy. The way to God is open because of Christ. I pray that we would get on God's page and, and sacrifice our wants and wishes to do his desire for the kingdom of God. As Bracton and Bryce, I don't know if they're helping you or not, to come, we sang this song a few weeks ago. God is faithful. I know we've gone through time and, and tragedy in Time Valley with the sports center being caught on fire early this morning and suffering there. We, can, we, we don't understand what's going to happen to us in this life, but we can understand that because of Christ opening the veil and we can have fellowship with him and we can enjoy his presence, that you're invited to him with all your troubles, with all your obstacles. I don't know what you want to leave behind. It's almost like Pastor Betty said already at the altar prayer time, but Maybe some of us really have to stop being fault finders. It can get so easy to be a fault finder and engage in the blaming game of, of, uh, of life that you miss out. You miss out on God. You miss out on the presence. You miss, miss out on the joy. You miss out on everything. And we need to really pray as this song says, do it again, Lord. So let's stand to our